Well, again, if you would, uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to Genesis chapter 9. And we'll be reading today verses 18 through 29. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan! A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let let him dwell the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you for the challenges of your word. We pray that as uh, this word is preached today, that you would be with this, your servant. We pray that your your word would uh, plow deeply into our hearts, that we would understand its teaching, that we would apply it in our lives. We pray that as we do, we may give you all glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the people of God have always been a mixed multitude. Now, there are two senses in which this is true, that the people of God have always been a mixed multitude. First, there are, in what is often called the visible church, a mixture of both believers and unbelievers. That is to say, that in the church which meets in time and space, such as we are here, the physical presence of the church, there have always been both those who by faith are following Jesus Christ and then those who have spoken mere words. And this is because the church of Jesus Christ is made up of all those throughout the world who profess the true religion and their children. And so the church, Catholic or universal, in her various expressions, is more or less pure in doctrine and in practice. 
and the people of the church embrace the truth to greater or lesser degrees. Thus, there are sometimes people who occupy seats in the church who have professed the faith, but in all actuality are not truly saved. They do not believe the gospel. They do not embrace Christ. Now you might ask, why would they be in the church at all then? And in some cases, of course, they don't remain in the church. They're only a part of the church for a season. But the answer to this question will vary by person and is ultimately beyond the main point in which I'm making, which is simply this. The church of Christ, in her very uh, visible manifestation, is a mixed multitude of believers and non-believers. Among the twelve, there, of course, was Judas, There have always been unbelievers in the midst of the church. But there's also another sense in which the people of God have always been a mixed bag. And that is that each of us, those who are truly among God's elect, are both sinner and saint. We are, like Paul in Romans chapter 7, doing the things that we should not do and not doing the things which we ought to do. And we're fully aware that we are wretched men and women, but thankful for the grace of God in Christ Jesus, for we have been set free from bondage to sin. We follow Christ, we seek to walk in Him by His Spirit, and yet we still succumb to sin and temptation. This is true of us because each of us are more or less pure in our own understanding of the doctrines of scriptures and are more or less pure in our practice of that which God's word teaches. And and though we have the spirit, we have the Holy Spirit as believers in Christ, yet we are still in the flesh. We are sinners who have been saved And we battle sin which remains. We still fall into temptation. We fail, and yet we still trust and rest in Christ. And so in that sense, too, each of us are sort of a mixed bag in our own hearts, right? Both of these senses, the mixture of the people among God's people and the mixture within ourselves, are present in this text today. Noah who prior to the flood was an exemplary individual. He was called a preacher of righteousness. He was righteous before God, having found favor with God, was also a great sinner. And after the flood, we're reminded of how great a sinner he actually was. And how much we, like Noah, need to trust in the Lord and not in men. I think that's one of the one of the reasons I think we we're given this is, is to show us here's here's the heroes of the faith who also were great sinners and failed and so again we're pointed to Christ and we see also the mixture of people as Noah's sons appear to follow the Lord but Ham falls into great sin against his father and so we're given a glimpse of what is to come later of course in the narrative. What is to come with Canaan? Ham's son will fall into complete unbelief and debauchery, and this will become evident among his own children, the nation of Canaan. And so now we come to this final section of the flood toldoth. Uh, that's that Hebrew word again. These are the generations of. This is a generation of Noah. 
and thus the end of also Seth's genealogical record. So this section is a transition. It's a bridge to what's going to come later, which is the table of nations in chapter 10. As the world was to be repopulated and humanity was to spread. Now, we saw last time how God had made a covenant to preserve life. And so the focus turns now to what is to become of those who had come through the flood and their children after them. Now recall that prior to the flood, the world had become violent and was wicked. Will the generations after the flood fare any better than those from before? Now the answer to this question comes very quickly in the debacle of Noah's drunkenness and his exposure and the results which come from that. Turns out there's still a lot of sin in the world, even in Noah's own household. But we also see God's blessings come, specifically to the family of Shem, from which Abraham is to come, from whom the Hebrew people descend, and of course, from whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes as well. And so again, we see that thread of Scripture leading us to Christ. And so we begin in verse 18, and the focus of the narrative is shifting from Noah, who in the genealogy of chapter 5 was prophesied to bring relief from the toil of the ground, now to his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now, you'll notice that Ham is specifically mentioned as the father of Canaan, where the other, the other sons aren't mentioned at all. But Canaan is specifically mentioned, of course, the Canaanite people, Um, come from Canaan. The Canaanites were, of course, the people who occupied the land prior to Israel uh, taking it, and who were in the land at the time that Moses wrote Genesis. And this is the only one of Ham's successors, only one of his children who are mentioned in the passage. uh, Ham is the father of Canaan and the object of the patriarch's later curse. Now, something else to keep uh, track of in your mind. There's lots of things to keep track of, so you can have to write things down, right? Uh, But you'll want to sort of put in the back of your mind the expression, the land of Canaan, because that comes up throughout the book of Genesis. It's mentioned throughout the accounts of the patriarchs. We'll see this over and over again, the land of Canaan. The first time it's mentioned is uh, during uh, Terah's journey in Genesis chapter 11. The last time will be at the anticipated burial of Joseph in in chapter 50. Now Canaan, in the Hebrew mind, is associated with corruption and wickedness and depravity. They were a people whose moral history and inclinations are at best suspect. And this is demonstrated first in the actions of their father, Ham. Israel was to go into a corrupt land, occupied with a corrupt and wicked people, which will be transformed and renewed into the land flowing with milk and honey, but which is itself a type and shadow of the new heavens and new earth. And so what is happening here in our present text sets the stage for what is to come later on in redemptive history. And so we read in our text that from the ark, 
departing from the ark were these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, the three sons of Noah. These were now to be the fathers, uh, the three fathers of the nations which would come. And the dispersion of the people over the whole earth was to be a part of God's blessing. Uh, He was making them fruitful. They were to multiply. They were to fill the earth. In fact, humanity was supposed to spread out and fill the earth. This was part of the creation mandate. It's renewed again here. Of course, we'll see later that they don't actually do this until after the Tower of Babel. Now, uh, the mentioning of the scattering of the people... Uh, from the sons of Noah marks a transition in the narrative. But it also reminds us as readers of the covenant promises of God, which look forward to a future salvation, even among all of the nations. So so again, all of this is sort of setting the stage uh, for redemptive history. But here, what is in view is simply the repopulation of the earth. so, So it says here in verse 20 that Noah... Noah became a man of the soil. Literally, in Hebrew, uh, he became Adam of the Adama. A man of the earth, of the soil. Now, you might remember this play on words from when we were in Genesis chapter 1. This is actually mentioned about Adam. Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. And so, again, our minds are reminded to what has already come before Noah himself became like Adam, a man of the soil. And as a man of the soil, he planted a vineyard. So Adam, remember his role in the Garden of Eden, had been as a caretaker of the garden. Noah's work in the newly cleansed world was similar. He was a cultivator of the ground. He worked and he planted a vineyard. Now again, remember the the prophecy of his father, Lamech. Noah's father in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29. That Noah would bring relief and rest from the toil of work. For the ground had been cursed. Now Noah's name actually means rest. That's what his name literally means. And some have suggested that Noah's vineyard and the wine it produced was the rest which was promised. Wine is, after all, a pleasant relief for man. Psalm 104 reminds us that wine was given by God to gladden the heart of man. And perhaps, some commentators suggest, the wine provided relief from the toil of the soil. This, though, I think is a bit of a stretch. I don't, I don't necessarily buy that understanding. The comfort Lamech longed for and anticipated was was from the curse of the ground, the toil of the ground. The ground that Noah worked was not free from this curse. Sin and the curse on the ground had not been eliminated by the waters of the flood. Noah and all generations after him still inhabit a fallen creation in a cursed ground which is full of misery and toil. And and you know this is true yourself if you have a garden, particularly in the Ozarks. It's very rocky. It's too much toil for me. You and I struggle and toil under this reality, don't we? The relief from the effects of the curse are still yet to come in the new heavens and new earth. And so if anything, Noah was only to bring a partial relief. No longer were the tyrants ruling the earth 
Uh, the generations of Noah anticipated the yet future rest, which of course is found in Christ and the renewal of all things. Noah had come through the trial of the flood, and he had emerged from the ark to restart life in a cleansed but not yet renewed world. And so he returns to work, and he returns to work as a man of the soil. His vineyard then is not the final rest, but is only a backdrop for the story of his curse and the blessings and his fall into sin. And so Noah worked in his vineyard. He enjoyed the bounty of it. But then in verse 21, uh, we briefly recounts a time of overindulgence and then the consequence which came from that, namely his getting drunk and laying naked in his tent. And here was the holy patriarch who had been, as Calvin put it, a, quote, rare example of frugality and temperance. He was a righteous man before God, a preacher of righteousness, and one who had kept his ground against the waters of the flood, here now succumbing to wine. And in so doing, he became a spectacle for all to see. For this account here is the one blemish against Noah's other exemplary record. And there's again a parallel between Noah and Adam. Adam sinned by eating of the forbidden fruit, and Noah sinned in drinking excessively of his wine. And in so doing, became a spectacle. Now why did Noah get drunk? Well, of course, the text doesn't tell us that. It's probably not because Noah was unaware of fermentation or the power of wine. Some have suggested that. Some have thought, well, maybe Noah just didn't know. I don't think that's what it is. It may be that he drank wine to seek his rest, but he overindulged. And the Bible does not itself or does not condemn the drinking of wine, but it does warn against overindulgence and drunkenness. In Proverbs 20, uh, verse 1 reminds us that wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so it's a lack of wisdom that leads Noah to his place. Here he is in his moment of weakness against the flesh. He fell into intoxication. And this had serious consequences. For him, as the text says, he lay uncovered in his tent. And we presume, we presume that he was totally incapacitated. In other words, he wasn't just a little loopy. He was out cold drunk. Noah's drunkenness was shameful by itself. But that shame is compounded by the disgrace of being exposed laying in his tent, such that two of his sons needed to take action to protect their father. He degraded himself in his drunken stupor. Uh, The Hebrew term uncovered here indicates that Noah had actually undressed himself. Uh, There's no indication that Ham or anyone else undressed him. And so here is Noah. Here here is Noah at the lowest point of his life. He has fallen into drunkenness. He's out cold in his tent. And then in comes his son, Ham, who sees him. Now, again, the text reminds us of the family relationship of Ham. It says again, he's the father of Canaan. In case you forgot, 
That's, by the way, anytime that's mentioned like that over and over, you should pay attention. Why, why does Canaan keep getting mentioned? Canaan, of course, again, is the bitter enemy of Israel. Ham, we read, we read here, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, some have suggested that when, when it says that Ham saw, they've suggested that what this means is that Ham raped his father while he was in a drunken stupor. That is uh, one uh, thought that some commentators have. They argue that this was the reason for the later curse. However, the expression to see nakedness does not usually refer to, this, uh, uh, to a sexual act, but to observation. Now, of course, a notable exception is Leviticus chapter 20, verse 17, which uses similar language as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. But in the context of Leviticus, unlike here, that is what's clearly in view. It also needs to be said that in Leviticus 20, 17, that the language is of, is of uncovering nakedness. But here, it's clear that Ham did not uncover his father. Noah uncovered Himself. It's not necessarily clear in the English. It's more clear in the Hebrew. And the point is that the sin of Ham is probably not physical in nature, but nevertheless is still a very serious sin. For what Ham did is to gaze searchingly upon his father. And that's the force of the language here. He did not look upon him in a harmless or accidental way. This is not simply an incident where he could have averted his eyes. Ooh, I didn't mean to see that. We've all had that experience. No, he looked at Noah intently. He was leering at him with scorn and disdain and in so doing greatly disrespected his father. Ham held his father Noah in contempt and thus was guilty of voyeurism of the worst sort. In general, voyeurism violates the dignity of another human being, taking from them any sort of privacy or propriety. It is, in short, a kind of domination to steal an intimate moment. This is, in part, what is immoral about peeping toms and pornography. Not only are those sins of lust, but they, are just, they destroy the dignity of the person. They're objectifying a a fellow image bearer, holding your gaze on what does not belong to you, another human being who is not your spouse. This is a sin against a person's dignity because they're becoming objectified. They're only an object for you. Even when that person voluntarily objectifies themselves. It is an impropriety which seeks to own and to dominate that which is not yours. Now, we do not know if this incident was initially accidental or not. We don't know if Ham simply stumbled upon his father or knew, oh yeah, dad's dad's in his tent, drunk and naked. I'm going to go in there and... It doesn't say. What we know is that, that... Ham came into Noah's tent, found him in this uh, drunk and undressed, and looked searchingly upon him. But Ham's sin did not stop with his perversity. Perversely staring at his father, 
And this really shows his contempt. He also dishonored Noah by announcing it to his brothers. Now what is implied here was that he told his brothers in a mocking way. It wasn't like he went outside and said, you know, you guys, like, dad's in a situation here. That's not what's happening. He's mocking his father and inviting them to sort of enjoy, you know, join him in his sin. Noah was being held in derision by his son. Ham, who should have sought to revere his father, instead disregards him and disgraces him and brings him shame. So here's Noah. Noah's at his lowest point, and Ham brings him even lower. Ham's sin was not necessarily in having seen his father undressed, but in his apparent delight in his father's disgraceful condition. There's a lesson here for us, I think. Whenever someone is brought low, even if they might be a great enemy of yours, you ought not to add to their scorn. The people of God ought not to delight in the downfall of others. Instead, we, ought, we should seek to protect their dignity, strive to cover their shame. Is this not what our Savior has done for us? Well, Ham's brothers, for their part, did all they could to protect their father, even averting their own eyes, walking in backwards. Uh, uh, verse 23, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shor- shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Now, these other brothers, these other sons of Noah, they acted honorably toward their father. They averted their eyes and they attempted to maintain what dignity Noah had left. The shameless sensuality of Ham and the modesty of Japheth and Shem mark a stark difference in the common morality of what is to come in the nations. These other brothers sought to cover their father's shame, not to expose it for all to see, not to announce it. Look at our father. Look at how look at what a horrible sinner he is. What sins are we willing to announce to the world? What sins of yours would you like announced all over the internet, in the local paper? This episode would have a dramatic impact, of course, on what's to come, which is why Canaan keeps being mentioned. We read that when Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, he sobered up, he learned of what his youngest son had done. Now, how, how does he find out? Did Shem and Japheth tell him? Did other family members tell him? How, how Noah finds out is left unsaid in the text. However it, however, it came about as a result of what Ham had done, Noah pronounces a curse. Verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So Ham is the recipient of Noah's strongest contempt. But notice... His name's not used. Ham's not mentioned. It's the name of his son, Canaan. Now you might ask, why? Why is Canaan mentioned? Theologically, we're challenged to explain how God could punish Canaan for the sins of his father. After all, Deuteronomy 24, Ezekiel 18, make it clear that a person should be punished only for their own crimes. Children are not responsible for the sins of their fathers. So what's happening here? That's a great question. I'm glad that you asked. 
Well, the, difficult, the difficulty is resolved when we recognize that what Noah is pronouncing is not an oracle of punishment or, or an oracle of judgment against Cain or even Ham, but rather this is an invocation to God. This is a prayer. He is bestowing through God both blessings and cursings upon his sons. And these requests would then fall upon future generations as well. Now, this sort of thing occurs regularly among the patriarchs. Um, Isaac blesses his sons uh, in this way, as does Jacob, who it says in, in Genesis chapter 49 that he blessed his sons, each with the blessing suitable to him. And if you know, uh, know about that whole thing, uh, some of those blessings seem like curses upon some of his sons. And so here, as Noah's youngest son had wronged his father, so a suitable curse falls upon him and all those who follow in that son's moral depravity. And the Canaanites, who are Ham's descendants, although they're not the only descendants of Ham, but the Canaanites are descendants of Ham, these are some of Israel's bitterest enemies and indeed followed in their father's sinful, depraved footsteps. Canaan, then, according to the prophetic invocation, was to be a servant of servants, which is to say in this Hebrew idiom, he was to be lower than even the household servants. I mean, that's how low he is to be considered. Canaan was to serve even the household servants. So among the nations, Canaan was to be at the bottom of the barrel. They were to be without stature. Now Noah's words, they don't carry any magical power in of themselves. Again, this is not a judgment oracle. This is simply a patriarchal blessing and curse. And since this is the case, there is therefore no grounds for reading more into this curse than there is. You see, some have assumed from this invocation that there must be some people who are inferior and other people who are superior. But to come to that conclusion is to miss the point. The concern here has to do with the morality of the people. Noah's prophecy concerning his sons foreshadows the future course of history and the dealings with his covenant people, in particular, who will come through Shem and whose promise is fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ. And except for Ham, not much more is said about the other sons. The only one really mentioned now is Canaan. And so the focus then is on the social and political life of Israel's ancient rival, Canaan, whose immorality had defiled the land, and as you read through redemptive history, they also threatened Israel's faithfulness to the Lord. In some cases, you see, where they fall into idolatry, which is one of the reasons for the Babylonian captivity, which is to come. Understand, Canaan was a problem for Israel all throughout history, and you see the beginnings of it here. And so as Noah announces the curse uh, upon, upon his youngest son, who had cursed him and what he had done, he also prays for blessings upon the older sons who had protected his dignity. 
Noah asks that the covenant-keeping God be seen as the God of Shem. Now you'll notice the blessing for Shem is only indirect. It is the Lord who is being praised. For He is Shem's creator and savior. What Shem was to have in terms of property was to be seen as coming from the hand of the Lord, from Yahweh. And similarly, Jepheth is to be blessed as Noah prays, May God enlarge Jepheth. And so there's a wordplay here to note. Jepheth's name and enlarge are actually the same words. Would you enlarge, enlarge? So all that was Shem's was to be Jepheth's and vice versa. Their holdings were to overlap, and to some degree, they were to become as one people. To reside in the tents of Shem is tantamount to declaring that his, that Shem's God will be Jephus' God. And while Jephus was to be welcomed into the tent of meaning, meaning, Canaan was to be driven out from the land and accepted only as servants as the Gibeonites were. And so as the table of nations in chapter 10 will point to his descendants spreading out into Asia Minor and Europe, Israel's history suggests very little contact between these two peoples. So how does Jephthah share in the land with Israel? How is Jephthah residing in the tent of Shem? It was not under the Old Covenant. In fact, it would not be until the new, with the Gentile church, that it could be said that the people of Jephthah dwell under the shelter of the God of Shem. And in this sense, what Noah's giving can be understood to be prophetic. It's the blessings giving, given to the sons, which is realized in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, when all the nations are brought into the tent of Shem. And so the, but the questionable character of Ham is a precursor to the wickedness of Canaan. And the prophet Isaiah look forward, looks forward to the other sons of Ham being reconciled to, to or the other sons of Noah being reconciled to Shem in the future. Thus all the nations being brought into the tent of meeting under the protective shelter of Yahweh who is the God of Shem. Of course, we understand in the New Covenant, this is realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even even here in Genesis, right? Even even in the days of Noah, we're, we're looking forward to what is yet to come in Christ. Well, the text concludes then uh, with an obituary for Noah. simply states he lived for 350 years after the flood and for a total of 950 years. Thus, this concludes the genealogy of Seth, which was presented back in chapter 5. Noah is the tenth and the final generation from Seth, and is the linkage between the old world before the flood, and now the new world that came afterwards. Well, as we stated in the beginning, the church of Jesus Christ is a mixed bag, and so are we. There is, even within our, ourselves, remnants of unbelief and the old man of sin. Uh, in his epistles, Paul reminds regularly for us to put off the old self, to put to death sin. Colossians 3.5, which we read as our New Testament reading, says, to, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
The Christian has been transformed by the Spirit, but we've been given new life in Christ in the power of His death and resurrection. Therefore, we ought to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Christ has called us to be His people, joined together as the body, the bride of Christ. And what is interesting to consider in Genesis, particularly uh, when we get into the study of the Table of Nations and the Tower of Babel in coming weeks, after the flood, God restarted creation in a sense and repopulated the earth. And the family of Noah spread out, and new nations were to come from them. They spread out throughout all of the globe. They became many people. But in Christ, all this is brought together again as a body. The body of Christ, which comes from every language and people and tribe and nation. Isn't it sort of phenomenal to think about how God spread everybody out and then brought us together as one body? And so we as followers of Jesus have a new self which is being renewed after the image of our Creator. In the body then, Colossians 3.11 says that there is neither Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The oneness of the body as the chosen ones in Christ then is the basis for our being holy and compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient and forbearing with one another. Because those who were not a people are now God's people in organic union with one another and with our Savior Jesus. This is beautiful. So our righteousness then is not found in getting it all right all the time. (laughs) This is certainly the case for Noah, right? Our righteousness is found in our Savior Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Beloved congregation, find your hope and your rest in Him. See, that's, that's what Noah's pointing us to as well. To find our rest in Christ. For we're reminded again in this passage, our hope is not found in man. Salvation comes from God. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the salvation we have in Christ. That though we have no righteousness of our own, through Christ we have His righteousness imputed to us by faith. And we thank You, O God, that, that though here in the history of the world You spread out the nations, and yet You are from all those nations gathering to Yourself Your people. And so we pray also for us as the church that we may be faithful to make disciples of all the nations. That we may proclaim the good news of reconciliation, of peace with God through Christ. May we be found faithful to that task. And oh God, we look forward to that day when Jesus returns again. Come Lord Jesus. Bless us, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.